All right, good morning, church. Welcome. Uh, if you're a guest this morning and you're new to the church, I want to welcome you. I hope we get a chance to meet and hope you get to meet a lot of the brothers and sisters around you. I um, want to say hello to everyone at the well, and maybe you're in the faith center, or maybe you're just somewhere at home listening. Thank you for joining in, and we pray that the Holy Spirit speaks to you just as loudly as to us in this room. We're in the book of Mark. We've been going through this 90-day journey with Jesus so have your Bibles ready. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6 today. Maybe you want to open up your apps and, and turn to there. But uh, I want to start off by sharing a memory I have when um, it was Father's Day and my son Evan, he was about five or six at the time, and it was really sweet. He came up to me as I was working at, at my desk and he says, Daddy, what do you want for Father's Day? And I was so blessed that he would ask me and I looked him in the eye and said, Evan, Daddy really wants a new surfboard. And, uh, I, and it was a true story. I'd been wanting a new surfboard, but I couldn't afford one because they're like $900 easy for a brand new surfboard. He looks at me and obviously he just walks away. He turns around and just walks out on me. Well, a few moments later, he actually comes back and he returns to me and in his hands is his piggy bank. And he gives it to me. This was the actual moment because it was so sweet. Like he says, daddy, take all my money and buy your surfboard. You know what was going on in my heart? I was thinking, how am I going to come up with $874.63 to make up the rest, right? Because obviously it wasn't going to be enough, and I would have to make up that difference. I want to ask you, when your father asks of you something that you feel is beyond you, what do you do? And I want to suggest you give him all that you got. You give him all that you have. Because the reality is our father is going to ask us at times to to do a task or he's going to call us to something that we're going to feel like we don't have what it takes. There may be times when you're going to feel like I don't have the knowledge or I don't have the words to share my faith with a friend. Or you may feel like I don't have the skills or the ability to, to serve in this particular way. And there will be many times we will feel like we are inadequate or insufficient. And I want to say to you, church, when the Father asks of you, give him all that you have. Give them all that you got. And I love that there's evidence of this all throughout our church where people will say, God, this is what we have. This is what I could give. I think about a group of people in this church who uh, have said to God, this is what we have, our hands. A group of handymen and handywomen in this church have formed a ministry called the Lord's Toolbox. Here's some of them from this team. And they go around using their hands, their gifts to help people where there's need. They helped build the rails on our camera platforms here in this room. This past week, there were some of them in our office building shelves for our staff. They go around and say, God, this is what we can do. This is what we can give. Use us. I got a text earlier this month, February 1st, just a few weeks ago, from a lady in our church, Naomi. And Naomi was kind of stressing out because her husband, Roy, had just had surgery, and so he was kind of bound to a wheelchair, and she didn't know how to get him in and out of the house. And so she's praying to the Lord, and then she, uh, she texts me a picture of this ramp that was built by the Lord's toolbox for her, for her husband, Roy. And she texted me. She said this, our God is so faithful. I didn't know how I was going to get Roy in and out of the house, so I asked God for his favor again. This is how he answered my prayer. And even before the Lord's toolbox made the ramp, God blessed me 
because they came and helped Roy get up the stairs and into the house after his surgery. There is no other like our God. And she throws up a bunch of hand praise emojis. These are the followers of Christ who have simply said to God, if there's anything we can offer, here's what we can give. Our hands. Our hands. Today in Mark chapter 6, uh, there's actually six stories. We're going to focus on two stories in particular. And in these two stories, we're going to see one where Jesus sends out his disciples to preach God's kingdom. And in the second one, he gathers his disciples to serve God's people. And you'll see that in between these two stories is a seemingly random story where Mark tells of how John the Baptist gets killed. It feels like it's random, but it's really not at all. But what I want to do in sharing these stories with you, I want to show you essentially that God is going to call his people to complete certain tasks. And when he does, simply give God all that you have. Give him what you've got and watch him make up the difference. Watch him give more than enough. All right? Let's pray. I want to ask you to join me in prayer. Let's ask the Lord to speak to us this morning through his word. Let's pray. Lord, that's what we want to do right now in this moment. We want to give you all that we have. And so we want to give you our hearts and our minds. We want to give you our focus and attention, Lord. And I know there's a lot of things this morning that are uh, distracting us or tempting us to, uh, to be somewhere else right now. And I pray, Lord, that you would just draw us near. Lord, we want to lean in. We want to turn our ear toward you and ask, Lord, what are you saying? So, Lord, I pray that you would... You would answer, that you would show up and speak up and show us, Lord, how, how you want us to respond to your word. And Lord, this morning, I, I give you my mouth, Lord, that you would take it and make it yours, that you would use it to say exactly what you want to be said. I pray that nothing I say would be remembered or written down, nothing I say would be memorable, unless it's true. And if it is, Lord, use it for your glory. Use it for your namesake, and we ask this in Jesus' name. We all say amen. amen, amen. So when you give God all that you have, you give him all that you got, watch him give in return. And the disciples show up, they do that and make themselves available, and so God gives them power. If you're taking notes, would you write this down? The first thing we're going to see is the disciples are given power. They're given power. So last week, we saw in Mark chapter 5 how the, the number 12 came up a few times. Jesus is with his 12 disciples, and Jesus goes and heals a little girl who's 12 years old. And then after that, he heals a woman bleeding for 12 years. And when we see this, we sometimes wonder, is there something significant about this number? For example, 12. What does it mean? Is there any symbolism there? Well, in the Bible, some people point out the number 12 as often representing the complete people of God. So you have the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob. You have the 12 disciples representing the followers of Christ. And then some people will point out that specifically at times it points out to the power and authority that's carried out by God's people. Here for the first time in Jesus' ministry, Jesus is sending out the 12 disciples to preach repentance and preach the kingdom. And when, when we, he writes this, we're not sure if Mark, we can't say for sure if that's what he had in mind. That he's consciously or intentionally trying to give some symbolism in the number 12. 
to represent power and authority going out. But we don't even have to guess because we know that's exactly what's going on. That as Jesus sends out the 12, he's giving them authority. So here's where the first story picks up in Mark chapter 6, verse 7. It says this, and he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority, highlight that word authority, over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. You can pause right there. Now, whether you believe or not that 12 is meant to be symbolic of power and authority, we don't have to guess. Jesus clearly wants to give them authority over the spiritual realm as he sends them out. And the power to cast out demons was going to be important for them in their ministry of the kingdom because in that time and in that place, that was a common thing. And when they're able to cast out demons like Jesus did, it's going to show the people that there is a new power at play. Now, there is a kingdom that has come. There is a new king who has arrived. His name is Jesus. And so he sends them out with authority. And he says, don't take with you anything, no food, no, no money. All you need is what I'm giving you. The little that you have, take with you, but I'm going to give you authority. Now, let's talk about authority, because it's clear that he's giving them power and authority despite the lack of food and money. What's authority going to do for them? Well, what, what is authority? Authority is when power is assigned to you, right? Because maybe power is not inherent in you. Maybe you're not naturally a powerful person, but authority is when power is assigned to you. Let me give you an example of it. How many of you, show of hands, watched the Super Bowl last week? Anybody watch the Super Bowl? Okay. A lot of us, almost all of us. Well, the Super Bowl last week, you found on this field, it was lined with some of the biggest, best football players in the world. You had the Chiefs and you had the 49ers. A lot of these guys, 200 plus pound athletes on the field running around. Can you imagine them running at you? Like, what would you do? Who can stop these giants? Well, I know someone who could. I know somebody who could make these men stop and yield on that field, stop what they're doing. I know someone who can make these men, these beasts, line up on a line in orderly fashion. I know someone who could make them move up 10 yards by his command or move back five yards. I know somebody who will penalize them if they cross the line when the time is not right. Who has such power? Well, this little guy, this referee, his name is Bill Vinovich. He's the head referee. Him and his team are able to, to control what's happening on the field. How? Authority. By the power that has been assigned to them by the National Football League. It's been given to them. Nobody in the crowds can control them. They can say whatever they want from the crowds, but because of their authority, by their word, these beasts, listen, they can make these giants take a knee. That's authority. And so Jesus has that kind of power. The disciples have been with him, and they've seen his power calm the storm last week. We, we saw his power raise a dead girl, 12-year-old girl from the dead. His power cured a woman bleeding for 12 years. His power, they saw last week, deliver a demoniac commanding the demons, legion, to leave, and they obeyed. That's his power. 
Now, now can I tell you something that is true, biblically true, theologically true? The demons are greater than you. That's just true. Look it up. They're greater than you in power. But can I share with you something that's also biblically true and theologically true? Jesus is greater than the demons. And Jesus, who is greater than the demons, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Amen? Greater is the power of Christ that dwells in you than the devil and the demons at work in this world. And when the power of Christ is at work in you, we will see the power and authority over even the spiritual realm. And when Jesus lives in you and he gives you this power and authority to preach the gospel and to have authority over the demons, then we will see that we actually have everything we need to do his work. And when you operate in the power of Christ we will see the miraculous happen, things beyond our natural ability happen. So we're going to see that in, in just a moment. But that's what we start with. The disciples give, them, uh, give themselves to the work of, of Christ. He gives them power. Here's the second thing that God gives them when they make themselves available. He grants them participation. Would you write that down in your notes? If you're taking notes, the disciples are granted participation. Henry Blackaby, in his book, Experiencing God, he says this thing that uh, just has always stuck with me. He says, watch where God is working and join him. In other words, find out what God is doing and join him. Get on board. And that's so good because a lot of times we go through life doing what we're going to do, going about our plans and our agenda, and sometimes we'll invite God in to come and get involved. And I, I want to say that's actually a good practice. Like my family and I, when we go off on a trip, when we get in the car, we pray and we ask God to come along with us and watch over us, keep us safe. Maybe if you're about to embark on a, a project or, or uh, something that you're going to do together with your team at work, I want to encourage you, invite God into that. Ask him to participate with you. Bless what we're about to do. That's a good practice. But... More often, I want to encourage you, church, to stop and instead of asking God to participate in what you're doing, find out what is God doing. God, what are you doing to reach those you so love in this world? What are you doing to reach the people in my home or in my workplace or in my school? Zoom out and say, God, what are you doing in our community? What are you doing in our government? What are you doing in this nation? Zoom even further out. God, what are you doing in this world to reach the unreached people groups? What are you doing to reach the world that you so love? Find out where God is working and what God is doing and join him. Participate with him. And so the disciples are with Jesus and they have this amazing invitation to come along and participate with him. Because all this time they've been following the rabbi going along with him, and they've been watching Jesus heal, watching Jesus preach, watching Jesus cure. And all this time, they've been very observant. But now in this story, we see that not only can they be observant, they now get to be participants. Because Jesus now hands them the baton, and he gives them his power and authority, and he says, now you go, and you preach the kingdom, and you deliver them spiritually. And so through them, God is going to do what God is going to do, but they get to come along. And that's so important. I want you to realize God is going to do what God is going to do. That means it's God who's the active agent, and God, by his power, 
will do what he plans and purposes in this world. And when you understand it is God doing what God is going to do, then rejection for what we do, it shouldn't impair us from doing his work, should it? Because it's God's work. It's his business. And so this is what he says to him as he sends them out. We pick up in verse 10 to 13. It says, he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if in any place, if any, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick. And he healed them. And so Jesus tells disciples, go out, share the gospel with people, go into people's homes. And then he says, and if they reject you, then shake off the dust on your feet and move on. And what does it mean to shake off the dust on your feet? Well, it refers to uh, Jewish customs. And some people have some different thoughts and ideas about how this uh, phrase came to be. But the idea in general is you, you are showing symbolically that we will now have nothing more to do with you. We came and you have decided to reject God and reject his kingdom. And because we are the people of God and of his kingdom, we will go ahead, take our message, and we'll move on. We're going to leave it between you and God. We're going to move on. Now, I don't know about you, but I find passages like this really encouraging, to me at least, very empowering. Why? Because it's like Jesus is saying to us, he's acknowledging and implying, hey, there are times when you're going to do my work, you're going to preach my gospel, and you're going to get rejected. And that's to be expected. Keep calm and carry on. That's okay. And I love that because for, for me, sometimes that, that cripples me from wanting to share because I think sometimes I might get rejected. He's saying it's okay. When I was in college, I remember it was my senior year at ECI, and so I got a part-time job there in Irvine to uh, join. It, it was like a baseball cap manufacturer. And as a part-time worker, I was, I was a telemarketer, and so I was supposed to call these uh, embroidery and clothing companies and uh, ask them if they want to buy our caps. And so they told me, my first day on the job, your goal as a part-time worker, your goal is to make 50 calls, talk to 50 customers. And not only uh, do we want you to talk to 50 customers, but we want you to sell two sample kits per day. And if, if you could send out two sample kits, that's a huge success. And so I, I go and, and I start calling, calling. I, I have a script to follow, and I'm talking to all these customers. And that day, that first day, I hit my goal of calling 50 people. I hit the goal. But I did not sell two sample kits. I sold seven sample kits. I killed it that day. I sold seven sample kits. And when I was done, my manager comes and he sees my tally sheet and he's like, yo, like who is this guy? And he starts telling everybody in that call center, hey, Greg just sold seven sample kits. He was so excited. He went to the other side of the building. He grabbed the president of the company, the owner of the company. He says, I want you to meet Greg. He just sold seven sample kits. He was so excited. Do you know what that means? Do you know what that means that I sold seven sample kits? It means that I got rejected 43 times. 
43 times people hung up on me or said thank you, but no thank you. I don't have the time of day. I'm too busy. 43 times I got no. And yet they didn't see me as a failure. They celebrated the wins because out of the 50 people I called, some said yes. I w- it was a celebration. And in the same way, Jesus says, go out, preach anywhere and everywhere, and, and there will be many who will reject. It's okay. Keep calm and carry on. Don't stress. And I, I love that because when we think about why we get scared to share the gospel, I, I think about why I get scared. And I think it's really egocentric, right? Because I fear my failure. I fear my rejection. I fear my persecution. I fear my humiliation. And it's all around me. And the reality is it ain't about you. It's not about you at all. God is going to do what God is going to do. And sometimes they'll accept. Sometimes they'll reject. Jesus, in the story right before this one, what happens? He's walking through his hometown. And what does he say? That a prophet in his own hometown is without honor. Jesus is getting rejected by his own people where he grew up. The next story after this, Mark seemingly randomly tells us about how John the Baptist gets persecuted. Well, why does he get persecuted? Maybe it's not so random. John the Baptist is preaching repentance to Herod the king. saying what you're doing is wrong because he got together with his brother's wife. And he's calling them to turn away from this unlawfulness. Well, Herod has a hard heart. Herodias has a hard heart. And ultimately, they reject this message of repentance and they persecute him. And so it's going to happen. It's to be expected. But don't let that stop you. Jesus doesn't say only sow on good soil. He never said that. He doesn't say go find where good soil is and only plant there. No, he wants you to go and sow anywhere and everywhere. Sometimes it's going to be hard soil. Sometimes it's going to be rocky soil. Sometimes it's going to be thorny soil. Sometimes it's going to be good soil. Sometimes. But go and preach anywhere and everywhere. And if they don't receive the seed and they reject it and there's no fruitfulness, don't stress out. It's not the seed and it's not you. Sometimes it's the soil. Sometimes it's hard and unreceptive and will be unfruitful. Listen, church, I want to encourage you that you are not responsible for their unfruitfulness. You're responsible for your faithfulness. I'm not responsible for the other person's fruitfulness. That's up to God. I'm responsible for my faithfulness to go and do the work of the Lord. And and if that's the case and they reject us, don't take responsibility for that. Shake off the dust, get up and move on. God is responsible for saving souls. He's responsible for changing the heart. He's responsible for giving them life and saving them forever. God is going to do what God is going to do in this world. And when you proclaim God's message of God's kingdom and they don't accept, they aren't rejecting you, because it ain't about you. They're rejecting God, and they will have to stand before God. God will deal with them in his judgment and in his justice in his time, so you don't have to. It's not yours to deal with. And so that should encourage us. Relax. Relax. Rejoice in the simple fact that we've been granted participation with the king. 
to go where God is going, to do what God is doing in this world. And when we get involved with what God is doing, we'll get to participate with him in the ups and in the downs, rejoicing when people accept and realizing people will reject, but we simply get to go with the king. God is the active agent in this world, and we're just participants. So watch where God is working, and let's join him. Amen? Amen. So God grants them power and he grants them participation. But here's what else happens when they give themselves to the work of the Lord. The disciples are given provisions. Would you write that down? Number three, the disciples are given provisions. So remember Jesus says, don't take with you any food and any money. No food, no money. Just go out. And he's showing them that even with the little that they have. In their hands, the little that they have, they are to be faithful. And when they are faithful, he will be faithful to provide. Just watch. Go. And so they take his authority and they take the message of repentance and the kingdom and they go out and he says, I'll provide the rest. And they go out and a lot happens. Like a lot happens in their ministries. We don't know all the details, but we know this, that when they come back, they're probably exhausted and hungry from doing so much ministry. And so the second story picks up in verse 30. Mark 6 verse 30 says this. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest. Highlight those words, desolate place, and highlight the word rest. He says, come rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place. There's that word again, by themselves. And so Jesus, as they're going about doing ministry, he says, come to this desolate place to rest. Why did I have you highlight that? Well, if you remember from a previous sermon, desolate place actually comes from one word in the Greek. It's the word eremos. Eremos, if I can remind you, can be translated desolate place, but it's also translated desert or wilderness. And Mark likes to use this word, eremos. He's used it several times up to this point in the book of Mark. And the desert or the wilderness, the eremos, is often a place associated with difficulty. Remember the Israelites in the Old Testament wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Mark chapter 1, Jesus was tempted in the eremos, the wilderness, for 40 days. And so a lot of times, eremos is associated with difficulty and trial. But you'll notice that Mark also has this theme where Eremos is also a place sometimes of rest. Also in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, it says, Jesus woke up early in the morning and he went away to the Eremos to pray, to meet with the Father. That's a very restful place. So let me point out, sometimes Eremos is a place of difficulty and trial. Sometimes Eremos is a place of rest and restoration. And I want to show you other times... Eremos is both, a place of difficulty, yet a place where you find rest. How is that so? Well, let me show you. So Jesus tells them, come to this Eremos, to this desolate place to rest. And we pick up in verse 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them, right? These disciples are becoming known for what they're doing. And the people ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he, Jesus, had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began to teach them many things. 
And, and so when Jesus tells them to go to this particular Aramos, this place, this desolate place, a crowd of over 5,000 men meet them there. And the Bible tells us there's 5,000 men, but people estimate there could be 10 to 15,000 people in total because there's also women and children there. And I'm sure, like, Jesus isn't oblivious to this. He's the son of God. He's omniscient. So I'm sure he knew that in this place of rest, there would be this massive crowd. And so how is this restful, Jesus? Is he trying to be deceptive? How is this restful? Well, Jesus sees this crazy crowd, and he has compassion on them. So he can't help but just teach them and, and feed them the words of life, the bread of life, and he just feeds them spiritually. And then after he teaches them, he also wants to care for them physically. So he says to his disciples, the 12, he says, now go ahead and feed them. Guys, go, go feed them. And they're freaking out because this is such a big responsibility. How is this supposed to be an Aramos, God? This is not Aramos. This is chaos. This is a massive ministry mess. How are we going to feed and care for the multitude? Now, I, I met with my counselor, a Christian counselor this week, and he was telling me that studies show that when there's a ministry situation or problem, uh, men tend to use the left part of their brain. That's the analytical side, right? And so they suppress the other side, the emotions, and they, they try to crunch numbers and solve problems. So I guys try to be problem solvers. They use the left part of the brain. Do you know what part of the brain women tend to use? All of it. All of it. That's why they live longer than us, guys. They're a lot smarter than us. But, but men, men try to solve problems. And I see that. I'm like, that's true. Because in verse 37, they see this massive ministry mess. And it says, they said to him, Jesus, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? So they're crunching numbers. There's over 5,000 people here. It's going to cost this much. Jesus, that's eight months wages. 200 denarii. We don't have that kind of money. We don't have that food. You told us not to bring food or money. So we don't have the food to feed them. We don't have the money to buy the food to feed them. We are coming up short. And once again, the disciples, like in the first story we read, find themselves in a similar situation. We got no food. We got no money. And I can imagine that in that place, that desolate place, they're feeling insufficient right now, very inadequate. And in desolation, maybe they're feeling that desperation. And we got not enough, Jesus. We can't do this. And perhaps that's the exact place Jesus wanted them to be. That he had them right where they wanted. And so at this point, he says, well, give me what you got. What do you have? And so they scrum around. They find what they got. They, they, they come up with five loaves of bread and two fish. Here's five loaves of bread and two fish. Here's what we have, Jesus. And then in verse 41, Jesus goes to work, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, it says, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. He gave them to the disciples, take note of that, to set before the people. And then he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. They all ate. The whole multitude ate and were satisfied. What does Jesus do when they give him all that they have? Even though it was not nearly enough, what does Jesus do? Jesus shows up and he makes up the difference. 
and he gives his divine provision. When they give all that they have to give, that's all Jesus needs to provide more than they can imagine. Jesus is saying, that's, that's all I need. Now let me show you my power. And he demonstrates that he is the God of the gap. He's the God who fills in the gaps. Not just enough, but he provides more than enough. And that's so important, church, because there's going to be times when God calls you to something, and you're going to feel like, I, I don't have enough. This is all I can give you. There's going to be times when you're going to feel like, God, I don't have the education. I don't have the eloquence. I don't have the experience to lead your people. Or you're going to feel like, I'm not smart enough. I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not skilled enough to serve in this way. You're going to feel like, God, what are you talking about? I, I don't have the credentials. I don't have the capability. I don't have the competence to lead a life group. You might be called to something. I don't have the words. I don't have the knowledge to share my faith. I want to say, if that's you, and you feel like you don't have enough to serve God, that's not okay. That is not okay. That's perfect. It's not just okay, it's better than okay, that's perfect. Why? Because if we just bring to God whatever we have, whether it's a lot or a little, as long as it falls short of what is required for the task, then that's where there is space for Christ to show up, for the Holy Spirit to, to come through and make up the difference. Not just make up the difference and provide enough, but he'll provide an abundance and show that he's the God of more than enough. And so when you're in that dried up desert place, dried up of all your resources, that place of desolation, and you're feeling that utter desperation, then sometimes all you can do in that eremos is to truly rest. By rest, I mean relax and release the result, release the rest to God. I want to make it a point that true rest isn't in the absence of difficulty. But true rest is when we bring our difficulties and place them in the hands of God. True rest isn't the absence of trial. True rest is when in the trial you just stop trying so hard to take control and play God and make it happen on your own. True rest is that in the trial you release it to God and you step back and rest in faith and say, God, you got this. You have to take over. I want to watch you do your work. That's where we can find rest for our souls. You let God fill the gaps. And so Jesus simply asked his followers, and I believe that speaks to us, speaks to you as well. What do you have to give? What do you have to offer? That group I showed you earlier, the Lord's Toolbox, the group of handy men and handy women, they give to God what they have. And if you know some of these people, they're not the ones who are going to come up on a stage and give a message for 30, 40, 45 minutes. They'll probably say, I can't do that. But I got hands. I, I have hands to serve the Lord. And so, so when they built that ramp for Roy, let's put that picture back up again. When they built that ramp for Roy, who was a non-Christian, Naomi was praising God because she had been praying for help. And after they had finished this, Naomi sent me this picture. 
I found out about a week later, about one week later, I get a text saying that Roy had passed away. And so many thoughts entered my mind as I learned of his passing. And I'll be honest, one of my thoughts was, man, they just built this ramp. They just completed it for him. He barely got to use it. They poured out their sweat and tears and love, and he didn't get to use it. In fact, I I talked to Naomi on the phone a couple days ago just to ask if I could share this story. She said, absolutely, please do. But she confirmed. She said, yeah, he didn't get to use it once. Not once did he get to use that ramp. But let me show you what God was doing. From the time between that ramp was completed and the time that Roy passed, in that one week, he went into the hospital. And when he was in the hospital, I got this text And this is from Naomi, and here's what what she wrote, word for word. She said, the angels in heaven are rejoicing today. All these years we've been praying for Roy, and God answered them today. Roy accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Praise God emojis. I know God has planted Roy on the good soil. And she's rejoicing, overjoyed. For years, they've been trying to lead him to Christ. And I texted her right back. I said, praise the Lord. I said, Naomi, what happened? What opened up his heart? And she responded. She said, well, for many years, Myra and I, Myra is her cousin who attends our church. She said, we've been praying for him and trying to speak Jesus to him, planting seeds. And she said, even Pastor Gary would would pray for Roy. And so seeds have been planted in her heart. But this is what she told me. She said, when the Lord's toolbox came to our house, and they started building this ramp, Roy saw the hands of Jesus. Roy saw the love of Christ at work. And I was told that he would sit there in his wheelchair, and he would look through the window, and he would ask, why are they doing that? Like, why are they doing this? Why are the people from the church, they don't know me. Why are they doing this for free? Why are they doing this? And little did they know that their hands, which helped build this ramp, which also, by the way, their hands were the same hands that were laid on Roy because when they came to the house, they would just pray for Roy. They would pray over him with those hands. Little did they know that their hands used to build this ramp were the very hands God would use to open up his heart. He said, I see that God loves me, and he cares for me, and he gave his heart to him. They didn't know that Roy would never use that ramp. And as they built that ramp, little did they know that God was going to use that ramp as a rampway to heaven. And God, you know, Roy may have never used that ramp, but God sure did. He used that ramp in miraculous ways to open up a heart and feed and satisfy a soul for eternity, giving him Jesus, the bread of life. That's our miraculous God, when you give him what you have. The disciples in both stories, whether it was preaching the gospel or feeding the people, they did not have enough. They did not have enough but God, God, who is able to supply more than we could ever imagine or ask for, not only gives enough, but more than enough, for the Lord has given them provisions. 
The Lord gave them provisions. And this is known in the Bible as a time when Jesus fed the 5,000. The, the most famous miracle, the only one besides the resurrection recorded in all four Gospels. But we know it today as a time when Jesus fed the 5,000. Not when the boy fed the 5,000. Not when the 12 fed the 5,000. We know it as the time when Jesus fed the 5,000. Why? Because Jesus did it. God is doing what God is doing. But Jesus granted them participation. He granted them participation when God was going to do what God was doing. You think about this. He could have just snapped his fingers and, and fed everybody at once, made food appear. He did it before. In the wilderness with Israel, he made manna appear from heaven. He didn't need no human agent. He made food appear for the multitudes. And yet this time, it said Jesus gave it into the hands of the disciples, put it in their hands. You go feed them. Why? I believe, I got to believe that is so that they can know firsthand, have firsthand experience, front row participation to see that we do not have enough and yet watch this miracle unfold before their very eyes. How can you ever forget what God is able to do? How does the story end? Verse 43 says this, and at the end, after everyone was satisfied, they took up 12 baskets. How many? How many? 12 baskets full of broken pieces and a fish. Why 12 baskets? I don't know. Maybe it's because there were 12 disciples and Jesus wanted each one to have a two-go box to take home. <laughs> take, take home box, go feed yourself as well. Or maybe perhaps there were 12 as a sovereign symbol for the disciples to remember what he promised from the very beginning. Jesus provides power and authority to complete the task that you can't do on your own. That the same power and authority of Jesus that satisfies both soul and stomach is given to those who are called to do his work. And so, church, I ask you once again, when the Father asks of you to do what you feel like is beyond yourself, what do you do? Church, you give all that you have. Give him what you got, and he will generously show up and give more than enough. Amen?